G'day and thanks for tuning in to the Outpost Church podcast. We are currently in the midst of 21 days of prayer and fasting as a church and we are eager to finish strong. We're also in the middle of a series on Philippians where we are growing in our understanding and application of the fellowship of the gospel. I hope you find this teaching from our Sunday gathering encouraging. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. What would it take for you to sell everything that you have? I think we know what would be the right answer, but what would it actually take for you to sell everything that you have? And this is not like selling everything you have as an investment or hoping in Bitcoin that it's going to just go through the roof or those virtual sneakers we're looking at on Friday. It's none of that sort of stuff. This is the end game itself. Like that pearl, the priceless pearl, He didn't buy it to then sell it and get something else. We can think with the treasure, oh yeah, maybe you just get a bit of the treasure and you can buy what you need. It's like, no, no, the treasure is this priceless pearl. And we like pearls, you know, Zipporah has the middle name pearl, there's evidence of it. I way prefer the way Christy says pearl to the way that I say pearl. Sounds way better in the American accent, like pearl in the Aussie isn't that amazing. But I've never studied a pearl. I've never just taken hours to just gaze upon the beauty of the pearl. Imagine being that into it, that you would sell everything that you had in order to have that pearl. It sounds pretty irresponsible to me. And I think we could imagine ourselves feeling guilty enough to have to do something like that. Um, But it isn't guilt. Like, it says for this one that goes and buys the field, that in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has. Imagine doing it for joy. Like, it is your delight. Like, get this stuff out of my life. I have what I need. A pearl. Giddy up. That concept is ridiculous, isn't it? Like, to sell everything you have in order for... Maybe it's a a big pearl, I don't know. But still, it's a pearl. Come on. Everything for the sake of a pearl. They say of sailors who are in violent storms and are in danger of drowning, like the ship sinking, that they throw everything they can off, right? It's a logical decision. Save your life. You get rid of all the cargo that you can. But so often, after that happens... The storm has subsided, you're on calm seas, sailors are filled with regret at all the things they no longer have. I was like, did I really need to throw off the coffee machine? Did I really need to throw off, you know, all these things? Suddenly it's like, oh, no, but this is not like that. This is joy, for joy sells everything that he may have, the pearl may have, the treasure. No regret. 
no sense of obligation, but for joy. Psalm 27, so written by David, there's this line that says, I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. For us, we think of sacrifice as just something that we're doing without. Like the literal interpretation of this and what it actually meant would look pretty macabre, like pretty messed up. You've got someone who's just slaughtering stuff and shouts of joy coming out of them as they're like literally killing animals. It sounds pretty dicey to me. It's a bit easier for us to get around this and understand what it means from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Here's a practical application of what it looks like for us to sacrifice with shouts of joy. You accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. You accepted. This is what they actually did. They accepted with joy the confiscation of their possessions. And it gives a reason why. Why do you think they accepted with joy the confiscation of their possessions? Because they could get revenge on the people that took it from them? Because they were definitely guaranteed to get that stuff back? Because they would get the upgraded versions of everything that they had stolen? We have two really nice TVs here that are in part courtesy of someone who broke in and stole the old TVs that we had here prior to that. They matched the size, but they were like 10, 15 years newer, and it worked out really well for us. That is not the hope that they had. That is not the reason that they were joyfully accepting the confiscation of their possessions. It was because they knew they had a better and lasting possession. A better and lasting possession. And the tense is an interesting one because I think I've read that verse many times, um, seeing it as a future tense reality because you will one day have a better and lasting possession. Other translations say abiding. I just like that word, abiding. An abiding possession, one that lives with you, that stays with you, that will never go. It's forever. What is that possession? What is that possession that we actually have now and that will, like, has no vulnerability? Let's see what David said about that. So that same one, the same um, Psalm, Psalm 27, where he goes on to say, I will sacrifice in your tents with shouts of joy. He says, I have asked one thing of the Lord. This is what I seek, or this is what I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. That's Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to be in his house. Doing what? Sounds pretty awkward. Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. It's one thing to gaze upon the beauty of a baby, but try doing it with an adult, one that you're not married to or, you know, in a relationship with. It's a weird thing. But here is what David sought more than anything else. One thing. 
to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. There's no other end game. It's not in order to to build this dynasty, which he had. It was all centered around the Lord, to live with him, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. We are going to have a look at Philippians chapter 3. We do have a stack of Bibles, a literal stack of Bibles, that's still a stack of Bibles, or two stacks perhaps, um, that are on the table in there. Thank you, Christy and Esther. Um, If you would like to have a Bible brought to you, then as they come out, just raise your hand and they would be delighted to give one to you. Um, So Philippians chapter 3, we've been working our way through the first two chapters of Philippians and there is just so much gold in these words. And I just commend it to you again. We... um, we read our way through um, a, a Bible plan not too long ago, um, and it was so good just to focus on each individual part of this letter, um, and obviously we're stepping through now in our, our sermons as well. And it starts off like this. In addition, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. It's such a simple statement that I've heard so many times in my life, and I'm familiar, as I'm sure many of you are as well, that there's another time in Philippians where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And the other time that he says, rejoice in the Lord, he says, again, I will say rejoice. There was a song that I grew up singing, which said those very words, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We are to rejoice in the Lord. And here is why. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me. And is a safeguard for you. It is safe for us to rejoice in the Lord. To find our joy in Jesus. It is safe for us. Because just like in that Hebrews passage, he, our joy that is found in him is lasting and it is better than any other joy. There is no joy that we can find in any other thing that matches the joy that is found in Jesus. And it is invulnerable. There is nothing that can take it away. We have this thing. Like in um, Ephesians chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, there's this beautiful prayer that Paul prays. And he prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that you would know the hope to which you have been called. He lists off three different things. But he says, not, I pray that you would have hope. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the hope to which you've been called, that you already have. You already have that hope. You already have this treasure. You already have this power, the three things that he goes on to talk about. You have these things but I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened that you may know. It's already your reality. 2 Peter chapter 1, he has given us everything required for life and godliness. We can hear that word godliness and think, boring. But life, and life to the full, he's given us everything required for life and godliness. We've already got it. 
It's past tense. It's been given to us. We have access to him and he is that one. And it's not that we're chasing after his joy. We're chasing after him and he is our joy. And one of the great benefits of having him is having his joy. In fact, when he was speaking to the disciples right before he was crucified, it's recorded in John in what's called a farewell discourse. So he washes the disciples' feet and then he just like talks at them for a few chapters. And he says, I tell you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I don't tell you these things so that your guilt will be abundant. I tell you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Jesus' joy was invulnerable. Jesus' joy is described in Hebrews as it says that um, Jesus, in, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy set before him. Such was the quality of that joy that he was able to endure the cross, scorning its shame. That's a big deal to go through that level of sacrifice because of the joy that he had. His joy is what we get to receive and our joy is complete. Anything else can be taken away, but not him. We can reject him but he can't be taken away from us. And that's amazing. Rejoice in the Lord. And then we have this really interesting passage from verse 2 where he's just getting stuck into a particular group of people. He's just sinking the boot in big time. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And it wasn't, like when he says, watch out for the dogs, it's not that Paul was like a cat lover. And so he's like, I don't like dogs. Watch out for the dogs. And he's just like giving it to all the dog lovers. But they didn't have pets. So Jewish people did not have pets back in the day. It wasn't a thing. And the, jo- the dogs, they were just scavengers. And the thing that separated, or a thing that separated the Jews from everybody else was that they were clean. And their diet, they would only eat kosher foods, only eat clean foods. There was a very clear requirement. Whereas dogs, they are not a kosher animal. Like they would not just eat the kosher foods. They would eat whatever they could get. There was no prescribed pow, chum, whatever. It was whatever they could get their teeth on. And so they are, by definition, unclean. So here is Paul. And the people he's taking exception to are the Judaizers. So the Judaizers, they are believers in Christ. But they are saying that in order to really be a follower of Jesus, you need to follow the commands of Moses. So you need to submit to circumcision and follow all the laws that were given to Moses in order to actually be a Christian. And Paul is giving them a pretty solid serve. And in doing so, he lists off three things which are pretty offensive to them. So first up, he's calling these people who call themselves the ones that are set apart. It's like, nah, you're dogs. You're evil workers. You're not the ones who are actually doing good. You're actually doing evil. You separate out into the Gentiles and the Jews that elapsed. 
and yourself as these thin ones. No, no, no. You are the unclean. You are the evil workers. You are the ones who mutilate the flesh. And he's having a bit of a play on words with circumcision. And going back, you might know the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal are like just absolutely messing with themselves. So they're slicing themselves up in order to try and get God's attention. And Paul is pointing the finger at them and saying, when you circumcise um, eight-day-old boys, you're actually, the, the heart behind what you're doing is the heart behind those prophets of Baal from back in the day. He's having a real crack. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. Plenty of times in the New Testament talks about circumcision being circumcision of the heart. It's an internal reality. The Old Testament, where the physical circumcision was the thing, is just pointing to this thing of a heart that is clean, a heart that is transformed, where the flesh is removed and we are free to follow Jesus. And he says, that's us because um, we have accepted the revelation that is Jesus, the completion of the law and the prophets. Um, We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. So all of our boast is in Christ Jesus, not in what we do, what we have done. Um, And then he goes on to boast in the flesh, but only to make a point. He's like, this, if you want to talk about your credentials, let me lay out for you mine. Let me show you that my, where I'm coming from is a place that's actually superior to where any Judaizer is coming from. And so Paul, we know that he's writing from prison. He mentions that a few times, that he's a prisoner. And this church that he's got started in Philippi has got these Judaizers that are on their way. And they're coming and they want to bring their message to the people of Philippi. And Paul's saying, don't let them. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. And he goes on to describe where he's coming from. He says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He's just listed off four things. And each of those were out of his control, but he's just saying, I am legit. I am completely legit. If he was here in SA, he might say something like, I was born at Ashford Private Hospital. My family all went to Scotch College. My parents are the most generous benefactors of that school. Like, I am elite. You should know that I'm elite. Everyone in my family has at least one doctorate, at least one house in every capital city around this nation. You know, he's saying, this is where I'm coming from. And then he goes on to list off three things that he has done himself. He says, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Not only was I born in the right way, but I've done the right thing. He's not saying he's perfect when he says he was blameless. According to the law, there were ways that you could make atonement when you did the wrong thing. He's done all that. He's kept the law. He has followed it closely. His zeal led him to persecute the church. We're looking at this last night, um, a few of us, and I, I heard about this last year, and it just helped me so much in understanding 
uh, where Paul was coming from. So there is a well-known passage that says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. But there's another passage in the Psalms that talks about this guy Phineas and his zeal was counted to him as righteousness. Phineas, he did something that was very violent. He, uh, in a time when Israel was compromised and an Israelite brings a Moabite woman into his tent, he takes a spear and he goes into the tent after them and actually drives the spear through both of them, killing them. And it says that Phineas's zeal was credited to him as righteousness. And there was a plague that they understood was God-ordained because they had corrupted themselves and they weren't pure. They were corrupting themselves and so they needed to stop. And Phineas is the one who's like, I'm going to do that. He comes in and he takes it upon himself in order to do what he believed God wanted him to do. And his zeal was credited to him as righteousness. So for Paul growing up, he understood that zeal was blessed by God. And even if it meant killing, zeal was blessed by God. If it brought about the purity of Israel, your zeal would be blessed by God. And here is Paul. He hears about the way this sect that's come out of Judaism, they're following this guy called Jesus, and they are corrupting Judaism as he understood it. And he stood opposed to it, believing that his zeal would be credited to him as righteousness. That is how much zeal that he had, that he persecuted the church. He stood and he approved the death of Stephen, and he set about making life ridiculously hard for so many others. But he goes on to say, but Everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. He starts using some nice accounting language. He likes accounting, bookkeeping. (laughs) Everything that was a profit to me, I now consider loss. It has changed sides on the ledger. All these things that for me meant that I was esteemed meant that people looked up to me. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were the most um, honoured of all the people of Israel, the most honoured. And amongst the Pharisees, he was standing out beyond everyone of his age. He was an up-and-comer. Things were going very well for him. But when he went into Damascus and went into the synagogue and began to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God... He surrendered all of that privilege. All the people that esteemed him, all the Jews, rejected him outright, straight up. Everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What's it all about? It's about knowing Christ Jesus. Obviously, he is the pearl of great price. He is the one that's not about what he can give us. It is about him. It's actually all about Jesus and knowing him. 
I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray. And then we're going to keep going for a little bit more. But I just, I want to get this more and I want us to get this more. It is, it's simple and it's something that I think we hear a fair bit. Um, but I want us to get our heads around Jesus being the pearl of great price. Jesus being worth surrendering everything for. And not as this, I'm a martyr, look at all the things that I've done. Like, I'm so amazing that I've surrendered all this stuff for Jesus. Like, no, no, no. For joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that field. That we would be those people. Not half-hearted, not in one day, out the next, but sell the lot in order to have Jesus. That we would see him clearly enough that we would behold him and actually want him. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you are here by your Spirit. And we just say, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus with a clarity that we haven't seen him before. I don't want to go through the motions I don't want to just play church. I don't want to just play Christian. I don't want to try and look impressive to the people of the church. I don't want to try and fit in with the people of the church or try and fit in with the people of the world or try and do both. I just want you. And I just want to consistently want you, not just occasionally get all fired up, but with a consistency. Lord, would you help us Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the reality of Jesus, the pearl of great price, the treasure that we could never afford. Open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Have your way in us. Have your way here today. Do what you want to do. Hallelujah. Verse 8, I read it before, I'm going to read it again. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My Lord. That sense of identity, like Jesus is the Lord, but he's also our Lord. It is personal. Continues on, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and consider them as dung that I may gain Christ. I said it before, but he surrendered all the privilege, like his whole life, you know, 30, maybe 40 years, had been as a Jew. And he continued as a Jew in some ways, but it was all about following the Mosaic law. It was all about being a Pharisee. It was all That was his trajectory. So all the people around him revered him for that stuff. And he's like, I consider it as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Like that is the reality that Paul, like when I talked about the, the, the boat, the ship where they get rid of all this stuff and then regret it afterwards, like Paul got rid of everything. He surrendered family. He surrendered his reputation. He surrendered his connections and friends, like everything, his ability to earn money, like he had to, you know, he went from being a 
a rabbi, went from being a, a teacher to a manual laborer, like making tents. He stooped. He had to stoop. But everything that was a prophet to him was dung. Like that we would see everything that could lead us away from Jesus as dung, as rubbish. It's not a hard choice. It's like, do I take the pearl or do I take the poo? Mm. That we would see things as they are, that we would see with clarity the pearl of great price, which is actually priceless. You cannot put a price on Jesus. And that is what Paul wanted more than anything else. And consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. The implication there is we don't gain Christ if we don't see everything else for what it is. We don't actually gain him unless we see everything else for what it is and treat them accordingly. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. He spoke before about having being blameless in terms of the righteousness that is in the law. But he's done with that. I don't want to have a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The alternate translation of that, through faith in Christ, is through the faithfulness of Christ. It's his faithfulness. Yep, we trust in him. It's both. It's his faithfulness and it's our trust, our faith in him. In uh, Timothy says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's who he is. He is utterly faithful. And because of that, we can be confident. That Hebrews 10 passage, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Did you know that we have confidence to enter the most holy place? Do you know what that means? Like back in the day when Jesus walked the earth, there was one person once a year that could go into the most holy place. And now we have confidence, not just once a year, but every day, to enter the most holy place. Actually, this translation, CSB, says boldness. Confidence, boldness. We get a bit more of an idea what that means. We have that because of what he has done. We don't have to doubt our access. But also, we need to want to do it. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal, this is verse 10 now. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection. NIV. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. We can giddy up around that. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Then he continues on. He's be like, oh, I don't know about that one. And the fellowship of sharing in His suffering. Really? Becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. All right, now we're with you again, Paul. But the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I want to know Christ so much that I actually want to suffer with him, suffer for him. Not for the sake of suffering, not boasting in my afflictions, but so that I can know him better. Like whatever it takes, I just want to know him. I just want to know Christ. That was Paul's goal. That is my goal. I want to be so much more consistent on it. I was driving back with Dave 
and talking about some running goals today. And I'm like, how am I going with my Jesus goals? How am I going with what I actually want to see happen in my life over the course of this year, over the course of today? Like to know Him, to see Him as He is. Surely that is the ultimate goal. I love the YWAM. It's not unique to YWAM. I don't know if they were the first ones to say it, but their mission statement is to know Christ and to make Him known. Simple. Just want to know Him and make Him known. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. I want to make sure that you are aware of our upcoming Discipleship Training Week. It is almost upon us. It is February the 21st through to the 25th. And we have sessions that will be going from 8.30 a.m. until 2 p.m. As well as a couple of things happening in the evenings. But Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 2. And uh, we will make that available through the podcast. But we'd love you to be able to join us in real time, whether that's in person or online. So check out the Discipleship Training Week from Outpost Church on our Facebook event for more details. God bless you.